want to say thanks again to the youth band for leading us in worship and also want to point out that if you are a teenager, you too can be a part of the great youth band. We invite you to come and be a part of things. Just come talk to Caitlin or anyone in the band. They'd be glad to talk to you more about the joys of being a part of uh, youth band and a part of things here. I want to say a uh, word of welcome to those of you, whether you're uh, new here in person or online. My name is Alex. Uh, really glad you made your way here this morning for the first time, especially if this is your first time ever or first time in a long time in a church setting. We're so glad you're here. Well, what we're all about is really simple. Connect people to God, to each other. Together we can engage our world for good. We hope you experience, taste of all those things here this morning. This is week two of a series called Counterculture for the Common Good. And the idea behind this is that for 2,000 years, Jesus' followers have been doing what he called us to do, which is to create communities that are intentionally different from the world around them. And sometimes the people around them thought they were just weird. And sometimes the people around them admired them. And sometimes the people around them hated them and wanted to kill them. But here's what's true. Here's what it means to follow Jesus. This is a, an outworking of what it means to follow Jesus. That you cannot follow Jesus and have your life look like everyone around you. There's going to be something about what it looks like for you to follow Jesus that's going to be different from culture around you, what you see in movies or TV or on your social media news feed. Not that everything around us is bad. It's just that at critical points, there's going to be divergence between what's normal in our culture and what Jesus calls us to do. Not just our culture, every culture. It's how it is. And so the question is, the question is, what does it mean for us to go against the flow for the common good? That's one of the biggest tensions of being a Jesus follower, one of the most important parts of being a Jesus follower. How do we go against the flow for the sake of the common good? Even when people around us don't agree with us, don't like it, and even when they hate us, what does it mean for us to genuinely be for our neighbors the way that Jesus was. Now, last week we hit upon the motto for the whole series, the big idea for the whole series, and that is that Jesus is Lord. That's the core conviction. 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire, the motto was Caesar is Lord, and it sure looked like it. Like the Roman Empire was vast, and Caesar was the most powerful man on the planet. And everyone said, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. And the early Christians said, even though it doesn't look like it, Jesus Christ, the resurrected one, he's Lord. And 2,000 years later, the line of Caesars is gone. The Roman Empire is gone. The Church of Jesus Christ rolls on and on and on and on. Because when you attach yourself to the wrong Lord, you die with the wrong Lord. And when you attach yourself to the Lord, who is a resurrected king, you live forever. That's how lordship works. And when we invite Jesus into our hearts, into our lives, when we give our, our lives into his hands, he gives us the same Holy Spirit that he had. And he invites us into communities together where we might form countercultures for the common good. What does it mean for us to be a counterculture for the common good? Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but there might be an election coming up. It's been pretty quiet. Not many TV ads about it or anything like that, right? Really quiet. And one of the things I've really appreciated about Chatham Community Church the last six years is we've worked really hard to love each other across political lines. We have people here who are passionate on the right, passionate on the left, and we've, we've been doing our best over the last six years particularly to love, honor, respect each other, and disagree well and still love each other as best we possibly can. So today we're going to ask the question, what does it mean for us to be Jesus as Lord people in a divided political climate? What does it mean for us to be Jesus is Lord kind of people in a deeply divided political climate. Some of you are passionate about your politics. Some of you hate politics and wish it would just all go away. Here's the reality. We have to steward this cultural moment well as Jesus followers. Whether you like politics or hate politics, it is so defining our culture. The question is, what does it mean for us to be Jesus people in a deeply divided political climate. How do we steward this cultural moment as faithfully as we can as a counterculture for the common good? 
Now, as charged as things are here today in our country politically, the ancient world in the New Testament was even more charged politically, right? So you got Rome that rules everything, Europe, Middle East, North Africa, like the biggest, baddest empire on the planet. And here's what you have. Some people loved the Roman Empire. They loved it. They like climbed the ladder, they made money, they were wealthy, they found positions of authority and, and, and to prestige. Some people were Roman sympathizers. Meanwhile, other people hated the Roman Empire. In fact, there were regular armed insurrections against the Roman Empire, civil wars breaking out all across the empire all the time. So you're in a violently charged political atmosphere in the world of the New Testament. More charged than we have here in the United States of America today. And so in, in his first letter, so the church is under his care. The apostle Peter is going to help them to wade through these tensions. Should Jesus people be Roman sympathizers or should we be Roman haters? Now, in the early churches, you have people who are probably mostly Roman haters. There's a lot of people who were slaves, a lot of people who were in the lower class who didn't love the Roman Empire. But you still have some who are Roman sympathizers. And these are still the two political parties in the ancient world. So you've got these divided churches, just like we have the divided churches here in the United States of America, who are trying to figure out how do we relate to Rome? And so what Peter is going to say is there's not just two ways. There's a third way. There's the Jesus is Lord way. And the call is to neither be all in on Rome nor all in necessarily against Rome. The call is to be all in on following Jesus. And then we figure out how to love each other. And then we figure out case by case, situation by situation, what does it mean for us to live as a counterculture for the common good that is neither all in on sort of the great Roman Empire because we know this empire will pass as every, Roman, every empire will. Nor are we necessarily going to go all in on just trying to accomplish our own means, our own tasks, and kind of retake what was, we think, ours or against the authorities. We're going to wade into this as a third way, the Jesus is Lord kind of way. And today, with an election straight ahead, with an election straight ahead, we're here to declare there's a third way, the Jesus is Lord way. And just like the early church had to figure it out what that looked like, we too are going to have to figure out what it looks like right here right now. And we're going to read today how First Peter tries to coach his early church through this third way, into this third way, in the midst of a very politically charged climate. What does it mean to be Jesus' Lord kind of people in the midst of divided politics and a politically charged atmosphere? So First Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. And as usual, whenever the New Testament says the word you, it actually means y'all. Ancient Greek, southern. Ancient southern Greek, y'all. So we're going to replace the you in First Peter chapter 2 with y'all because it's almost always plural, right? So we're going to read it like good southerners. It's a y'all. We're going to put y'all right in there to help us understand that when Peter says you, it's not just you being a countercultural person. It's y'all together being a countercultural community. And we're going to highlight a few key words that, Paul, that, that Peter is going to sort of use to describe what God's up to and who we are in Christ Jesus and what does it mean to live as Christ Jesus kind of people, all y'all together. So here's the New Testament's favorite word, y'all. Starts off right away. As y'all all come to him, the living stone, that's Jesus. Watch how the stone language gets worked out all throughout the rest of the text. Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, y'all also like living stones. Now we're the living stones, just like Jesus are being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices. These are all ancient temple language kind of pictures. What does it mean for us to come together as Jesus people? No longer a building. The temple was once a building where, Jesus, where God lived on the earth. Now God lives among us as we come together, all y'all together, living stones, being built into a spiritual house, holy priesthood, 
offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, and here Peter quotes some Old Testament passages, see, I lay a stone in Zion. There's that stone word, a chosen precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. He's quoting Isaiah 28 from the Old Testament, 700 years before Jesus, where there's all this political conflict and intrigue. And he says, there's a stone that God is laying, the precious cornerstone. No one who trusts in him will be put to shame. Now Peter says, now to all y'all who believe, that stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's Psalm 118, King David declaring his victory in the midst of a politically charged atmosphere. And finally, Psalm, uh, this is Isaiah 8, the stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So that's Isaiah 8 about 700 years before Jesus. It's a time when everyone in Jerusalem is totally freaking out. So Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, everyone in Jerusalem is freaking out. There's political conflict internal to Jerusalem. And then there's a nation, the Syrian, barreling down, just conquering all the nations around them. All this tension, all this turmoil. God raises up the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 8, uh, Isaiah goes to Jerusalem. He speaks to all the leaders. And he says this very prophetic word that I think is actually very helpful for us today in 2022, as, as, as relevant as it was 700 BC. Here's what Isaiah writes as, he's, as he speaks the word of God to a people who are freaking out politically, militarily. Here's Isaiah 8, verse 11 says this. This is the context Peter's pulling from. This is what the Lord says to me with a strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Be a counterculture for the common good. Now hear this, my friends. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you regard as holy. He's the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them to fall. When, uh, when one of my kids was little, I was teaching him how to ride his bike, and we went to this uh, playground kind of park area. It was, so, it was nice. It was a nice paved path around the playground and uh, nice long straightaways. The only downside of this sort of path was there, was a, there were poles on the corner of each, at, at each turn, right? There was big square poles, light, big light poles, right? And he was so anxious about hitting the pole, he would stare at the pole and stare at it and stare at it and steer right into it and like crash into it every single time. And so I had to coach him. I want you to be aware of the pole, but I want you to look past the pole to where you want to go. Isaiah 8, politics, intrigue, conspiracy, drama, drama, drama. And Peter's going to say the exact same thing. I want you to be aware of the politics. Be aware of what's going on politically, militarily, economically. And then for some of you, that's going to be your life's work. For some of you, God's going to call you to step into local politics or into economics or into the situations. And the Lord bless you and keep you, give you all kinds of wisdom. But the call from the scripture is that we are to be aware of the situation around us, but we're focused on the Lord who is over the situation in front of us in order to relate rightly to the situation around us. We're to be aware of the situation around us, but we are to be focused beyond the situation in front of us to the Lord who is over the situation in front of us so that we might relate rightly to the situation in front of us. Because here's the thing, you fix your eyes 
on whatever your cable news station of choice is, you fix your eyes on the politics and the drama and the intrigue and call everything a conspiracy, you're going to crash right into it. If that's where you're focused on, if that's what you're building your life around, it's going to become true. You're going to crash right into it. You're going to get all caught up in it. And what the scriptures say is, do not fear what they fear. Do not dread what they dread. The Lord Almighty, he's the one we're to fear. Fix our eyes on. Worship. Reverence. Honor. He's the one that we build our lives around. We focus on him in order to relate rightly to this place, to the situation, to this current cultural moment. We have to steward as creatively and faithfully as we can. So when you're fixed on God, you're able then to relate rightly to the situation in front of us. Faith, hope, love, wisdom, courage, humility, even love for your political enemies, just like Jesus had. We're aware of the situation around us. We're focused on the one who is Lord over the situation around us in order that we might relate rightly to the situation around us as best as we can. Peter declares that because of Jesus Christ, we're a new kind of people. He says, listen, here's the deal. Good news. There is a living stone. His name is Jesus. And he's a precious gift. He's, he's also, at the same time, rejected and a stumbling block. This is something that God's done in history. God has done this thing. He sent his son Jesus to be this precious gift, this living stone. Two things are always true about God's work in human history. One, it's always a gift. And two, it's always rejected by some people. Right? God's work in history, always a gift, always rejected by some people. But because it's something that God's done in history, you can't undo it. Like human beings can't undo what God has done in human history. And so whenever God does a good work, especially this living stone, his name is Jesus, what's, what's happened over the last 2,000 years is people have tripped over it and cursed it over and over and over again. See, the very first temptation was the lie. You can be God. You get to decide what's good, what's bad, what's evil, what's right, what's wrong. That's the very first lie. And it was a lie, but we still believe it. And we still want it to be true. But it's not. And God's still at work in the world, continuing to move into a world with a, with a planet full of people who think that they are like, they're God and they want to be God, right? We all want to be God. And so we start by rejecting God and God's ways and God's wisdom. We reject what God says is the way to live right side up in an upside down world. And the scripture says, well, that's sin. We don't like that. And then the scripture says, well, anytime you sin, it's like a mark on your ledger. You can't undo it in your own strength. You can't erase your own sin. You can't do enough good to offset the bad you've done. That's in history. It's a part of what you are. It's part of who you are. You can't undo your own sin. We don't like hearing that either. So the scriptures say, well, God had to put on flesh to overcome our sin. He laid down his life, a living stone, to wash away our sin. We kind of don't like that either. We want to, be, we want to take care of our own sin. We want someone else to take care of it for us. And then we hear that God raised his son from the dead. And that's kind of weird and crazy. And so we kind of reject that. And there's a whole series of things that we reject and reject and reject because we want to be God. And so the scriptures say, well, here's what God's done in human history. He sent his son, a living stone, to wash away our sin, to forgive us of our sin. And here's the deal, the living stone, this could be the cornerstone of what God's done in history. It will either be the thing that you reject and curse over and over again throughout the course of your life, and I have people in my life who have done that, or it's going to be the greatest thing that ever happened to you. The cornerstone, the thing you build your whole life around, your salvation, the thing that changes your life from this day forward into eternity. Once you receive that living stone, 
The scriptures say, you too become a living stone. You become a living stone. You become a place of, a, of, of the, the temple, a spiritual temple together where we're offering living sacrifices in Christ Jesus because of Jesus Christ. You too can be a living stone. That becomes a primary identity. Turn to your neighbor, say neighbor. Turn to your neighbor, say neighbor. You are a living stone. Some of you sound like it right now. We become living stones fitted together on the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the thing that was sort of the, the anchor, the thing that you built everything else around that sort of helped you to know what a right angle looked like and how it was going to stay upright. You build your lives around the living stone. And we do it together as a community. Living stones fitted together. Each of us playing our parts. Each of us organized and ordered around the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ himself. Now, what Peter continues to do in the rest of the, the next chunk of the passage is he, he gives these people, these living stones, a whole new set of names. And almost all these names are Old Testament names that were once reserved just for the Old Testament people, the Jews. And now Peter, who is Jewish himself, says these words, these titles, these names are no longer reserved for one ethnic group, one nation. They're now available to all y'all in Christ Jesus. Here's how Peter continues to sort of rattle off this beautiful set of names, titles, who we are in a politically divided culture. Here's who we are in a politically divided culture. But all y'all in Christ Jesus are a chosen people. That's Jewish language, Old Testament language. A holy nation, totally ironic because it's no longer about a nation or geography. It's now about all peoples who come together in Christ Jesus. A royal priesthood, more Jewish temple language. God's special possession, also Old Testament reference. So that all y'all together may declare the praises of him who called y'all out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once y'all were not a people, but now y'all are the people of God. Once y'all had not received mercy, but now because of Christ Jesus, all y'all have received mercy. See the culture of Peter's day, so deeply divided. Is it Roman sympathizers or Roman haters? And then in Peter's subculture, he's Jewish. And the Jews had two categories of people. There's Jews and everybody else. Jews and Gentiles, that was, a, that was their category, right? Those are political categories. And what Peter says is what Jesus has done cuts through both these polarities, cuts through both of them. It's not about Rome, pro or con, not even about Jew, Gentile. He's saying, listen, it is about all y'all being living stones, a royal priesthood, chosen people, holy, dearly loved. All these were Jewish titles, Jewish names. Peter is a good Jew. He loved these titles, loved these names. He grew up saying, this is reserved just for God's special people. And now Peter, because of Jesus, says, Good news, good news. All y'all, everybody, every nation, every ethnic group invited in. Now, this is especially important for Peter who has a case, a big case to be made from the Old Testament scriptures that these titles, these names were just reserved for Jewish people and you had to become Jewish in order to attain them and experience them. And if anyone had a case to tie the Jesus way, the Christian way. If anyone had a case to tie Christianity to a specific people group or ethnic group or nation, it was Peter, it was Paul, the whole New Testament writers, all of whom are Jewish. But here's what they refuse to do. Here's what they do. The New Testament screams out, what God has done is no longer attached to one ethnic group, to one flag. They refuse to wrap the cross of Christ with a Jewish flag around it. They won't do it. And they had every, they had every reason to. And they won't. And so here we are 2,000 years later, and we stand in their, and we stand in their, in, in their tradition. We stand in the scriptures, and we say, listen, my friends, there is no nation that has the power or authority to wrap the cross of Christ in its own flag. 
It was not true for the Jewish nation 2,000 years ago. It's not true for the United States of America. Christian, American Christian nationalism is an anathema to the New Testament. There is no way that you can wrap, wrap the cross of Christ with an American flag and say, this is it. You cannot live as American Christian nationalism and call it Christianity. The New Testament Jews refused to do this, and they had every reason to. And so we cannot, we cannot say we follow Jesus and say the United States of America and the kingdom of God are all one and the same. Because here's what Peter declares, that Jesus has done a totally new thing. He is bringing all people under one cross instead of under one flag. What Jesus is doing, all people, all nations, all ethnic groups, under one cross, not under one flag. Under one flag, that was Rome. Under one flag, that's what, that's what empires do. Conquer, conquer, conquer. What Jesus is doing is totally different. He's going to bring all people together, not under one, under one flag, under one cross, a place of self-giving, sacrificial love, service, a counterculture for the common good. And if we're Jesus followers, our commitment to the cross is vastly superior to our commitment to any one flag. For Jesus followers, our commitment, our primary commitment is always first and foremost to the cross, secondarily, a distant second to any nation that we might inhabit. There's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the United States of America. They are not one and the same. And even though there's large portions or some portion of the United States of America that's running the Jesus operating system, there are always, always, always be portions of the kingdom of the United States of America that Jesus followers must and have to resist, speak against disagree with vehemently if we have. And so we declare that American Christian nationalism is no Christianity at all. It is no Christianity at all. It is so far from what the New Testament declares. It is so far from what Jesus intended. And we will not wrap the cross of Christ with an American flag or any flag. And listen, my dad was in the military 21 years. I grew up moving every three years. I love this country. I love this nation. I'm all in. This is like one of the best experiments that humans have ever created. I love it, love it, love it. But my friends, I love Jesus more. And this place, as great as it is, and I pray it lasts for a long time, I'm praying that we work through all the conflict, all the tension, all the animosity, all the ugliness. I'm praying that it dissipates, that we continue to create a nation where we can continue to work on to become the, the, the nation that we kind of cast vision for in the Declaration of Independence, in the Constitution. These are some wonderfully creative things that were happening in the, in the American experiment. And at the end of the day, there's the kingdom of God that I'm attached to. There's the kingdom of the United States that will one day pass. Jesus is Lord. And there is no other flag, no other Lord that I'll bow to and tie myself to. And as Jesus followers, there's an invitation to walk in the Jesus way and to recognize there are all kinds of kingdoms vying for your, uh, vying for your allegiances, vying for your heart, vying for your imagination. And the invitation is to follow Jesus as a counterculture for the common Good. We love God. We love our neighbor. We love this nation. We serve our neighbors. We do everything we can to make it a more beautiful, healthy, just, righteous, good society. We do everything we can to make it a good place where people are flourishing. And at the end of the day, our primary allegiance is to the cross of Christ, not to any one flag. Peter says it's not about any kind of Christian nationalism, whether Jewish or American. It's about being living stones. These beautiful descriptions of what the people are and who we are to become in Christ Jesus. I confessed to you last week, I listened to nerdy podcasts. I listen to nerdy podcasts so you don't have to. 
That's, a, that's what I do. Uh, but if you like nerdy podcasts, and if you want to like, listen to someone or engage with someone who really thinks super well about, um, about sort of the, the culture, Western culture in general, and what does it mean to be the church, what does it mean to be the Jesus followers in the midst of this culture, uh, Rebuilders by a guy named Mark Sayers. Rebuilders. He's Australian, so he has a very cool accent, which makes him so much smarter, obviously. He's got a really cool accent. He's super smart, and he's super, super sharp, super insightful, and really thoughtful about what does it mean for us to be Jesus followers, disciples of Jesus, first and foremost, in the midst of the Western, the Western contemporary landscape. And he, he was talking about a book he read, and I, I found it nerdily interesting, and I hope for the next three minutes you'll stick with me for those of you who don't like nerdy stuff. But he said, hey, there's two categories from this book that, that sort of describe sort of West, the Western people, Western personas, right? Two big categories, uh, European, Western kind of set. The first one it talks about is the imperial self. The imperial self conquers, builds. Right? Like expansive empire building, right? Uh, Great Britain had a time when they boasted the sun never set on the British Empire. Because they conquered the whole world. They had colonies all over the world. That's the, that's the classic picture of sort of Western imperialism, right? America, we had that experience with Western expansion. It doesn't matter who's already in the nation or already in the land. We're going to kind of keep pushing west. You see it still today, right? People, I mean, America, we love, like, we love making stuff. We love creating stuff, right? The iPhone, the whatever. We're inventing all kinds of things, right? There's this ambition to build and expand and to grow. We talked about the imperial self. And my friends, that's evident all throughout American history. And it's true today in the political right and the political left, right? There's expressions of this sort of ambitious, arrogant, kind of push to grow, 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 build, build, build your version of whatever the American dream is, right? There's expressions of this in both the right and the left. And then they said, well, there's also a counter to this or reaction to this. They call it the infantile self. The infantile self is entitled, easily triggered, claims victimhood very quickly and easily and uses victimhood claims to sort of leverage power to get outcomes that they want. He told the story of, a, 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 of being on an airplane recently and the, uh, the woman across the aisle uh, was complaining. The whole system was out. The entertainment system was out for everybody. Like no one had any TVs that were watching or whatever. So the woman across the aisle gently pulled the stewardess aside in kind of a passive aggressive way, uh, complained that uh, she wasn't getting what she paid for and said that maybe she was being singled out among everyone on the uh, airplane. Entitlement, victimhood, complaining, right? In this passage, here's what Peter says. Peter says, neither the imperial self, ambition, conquest, nor the infantile self is the kingdom of God. Instead, we're living stones. Instead, we are living stones. We are neither sort of aggressively chasing down our ambitions, our agendas, nor are we stepping back and complaining that we're not getting what we think we're due and what we, are, what we deserve. And to the imperial self, to the people who are go, 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 build, 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 Peter says no, the scripture says no to selfish ambition, but yes to building. Yes to building with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. Living stones, those of you who are a little bit more imperial, a little more ambitious, a little more, let's go, let's go storm the castle, build great things. You were made to build, you're a stone for crying out loud. Yes, go build something. Build beautiful families, build a great business, build a great church, great nonprofits, build a beautiful garden, build, build, build. But listen, we never build apart from the living stone, the cornerstone. We don't build things that exploit people, that use people. We don't build in such a way that it, that it destroys the environment. We are good stewards of what God's entrusted trust us with. And also, as builders who are aligned to the chief cornerstone, as builders who are aligned to the chief cornerstone, we recognize all our building falls short of the kingdom of God. There will be constant repentance, renewal, recalibration, a humble recognition that anything you build is going to require constant tweaking 
because it's going to be constantly being, have to be readjusted around the living cornerstone. To those of us who are a little bit more infantile, a little bit more reactive, a little bit more uh, entitled in our, in our thinking, the, the, the scriptures say, the living stone says, no to entitlement thinking, no to a victim mentality, but yes to crying out to real wrong, real sin, real injustice. There are wrongs in the world that need to be unapologetically called out, pulled out. Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, he's like speaking about injustice all the places. So my friends, when you become a living stone kind of person, your primary language is no longer about your rights. Your primary language is about worship for God, love for neighbor, and tending to our neighbors, especially the people who are the weak, the marginalized. We fight for those people. Yes, by all means, we sound the alarm as faithfully as we can, as loudly as we can. If there's wrong, it needs to be tackled. Peter says, neither the imperial self, ambition, aggression, nor the infantile self, entitlement, Easily kind of triggered into kind of victim mentality, but living stones, serving God's purposes in the world. Now to the rest of the passage, Peter pivots because the question still comes, what about Rome? What about Rome? How do we live, as, how do we live here in Rome? So Peter's going to pivot and kind of give some, some instructions, and he's going to give them a different title. He's been given them these great names. You're living stones. You're like a holy priesthood, all these big kind of grand names. And now he pivots to get really, really granular. What does it mean to be a living stone in the empire of Rome? Peter writes this, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. My friends, if Jesus Christ is Lord and we're Jesus' people, then we're foreigners and exiles. That means we intentionally say we're a counterculture for the common good. That means we intentionally abstain from some things that are totally normal in the rest of the world around us because our primary allegiance is to Jesus as Lord, not to any Caesar, not to any nation, not to any flag. And specifically, Peter says, abstain from sinful desires. That's power grabbing. That's selfish ambition. That's lust. That was all pagan empire stuff. Pagan Rome was full of all those practices. And Peter says, not for us. Instead, Peter says, uh, live in such a way that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they can't help but see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In this context, particularly, the pagan gods were worshipped because that was the deal. You worship pagan gods and they bless your army. You worship pagan gods, they bless your crops. You worship pagan gods, they give you babies. And the people didn't like the Christians or the Jews because they had permission not to worship the pagan gods. And the pagan people said, what if we start losing our, our, our battles? What if our crops start dying? What if we don't have babies anymore? Because these people won't worship our gods. And so they accused them of being uh, counter the empire, being sort of a, a thing that was working against the empire. And Peter says, listen, though they accuse you of doing wrong deeds, may they see, may, though they accuse you of doing wrong, may they see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. But hey, Peter, what do we do about the emperor? What do we do about the emperor? None of us like the emperor. What do we do about the emperor? Peter says, well, let's get really granular. Let's talk about the emperor. Here's what you do about the emperor. Submit yourselves. Doesn't say obey. It says submit yourselves. Y'all selves. For the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether the emperor as supreme authority, governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, y'all together should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people. Do not use y'all's freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the other living stones, the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor former co-worker of mine many years ago. She was, she's, uh, she's on staff down at the church in Greensboro, and uh, she was among the 50% of people who hated Donald Trump, right? She just hated him, like 
hated him, hated him. For the first two years of her job, uh, well, under his uh, presidency, she talked about him like everyone else talked about him. She, talked, said she bad-mouthed him. She hated him. And then she was convicted by passages just like this one. Said her job was to honor the emperor. And so what she did, she was, she, what she did for the last two years of his presidency, she only referred to him as President Trump. Only President Trump. That was the only way she was going to talk about him. She was going to vote against him. She was going to vote against everyone that was aligned with him. She was always against him. But she was always, always, always going to refer to him as President Trump in a respectful way, honoring the emperor, honor the president. My friends, this passage invites us to live biculturally and to live in the tension of what it means to live biculturally. And there's some on the far right that want us to wrap a flag, a flag around a cross and say, that's America and that's Christianity. It's all bundled together. And then there's some on the far left that just want to pull it all down due to cynicism, right? There's some on the secular progressive left that even want to deny that some of the things, most of what they, they believe in was found in Jesus. There's a pastor out in Portland that says, basically, the secular progressive left wants the kingdom of God without the king. The secular progressive left, they want, the sermon, they want to cherry pick the Sermon on the Mount and take out the God stuff and the really hard stuff. That's what they want. And it's so much easier to tear something down than to build something up. And so to close out our section, Peter gives us two more names, right? Free people, but not using as a cover-up for evil or wrong. And then we're God's slaves. And so, my friends, we live as a counterculture for the common good. Foreigners, exiles, God's slaves, loving our neighbors, loving God, walking a life of faith, hope, love. And while some of us would love for us to bow the knee to the flag more than to the cross, and while some of people in our culture on the far left would love it, if we did Chatham serves every week and just didn't bother with the God stuff, the Jesus stuff, they would love that, we say neither. There's a third way, the Jesus way. We come to this meal, these tables, to celebrate this story and declare the good news. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Long after today's headlines are yesterday's news, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And we're going to come to these tables to calibrate our hearts and our lives around this cornerstone. Because, see, my friends, on the night Jesus was betrayed, there was conspiracy everywhere. On the night Jesus was betrayed, politics, religion, power, military might, conspiracy everywhere. And you know what Jesus did? He was aware of the conspiracy. He's aware of the politics. He's aware of the power. But you know what his eyes are fixed on? God, his father. You know what that frees him to do? Serve his disciples. You know what it frees him to do? Serve you and serve me by laying his life down on the cross. He is not afraid of the conspiracy. He's not afraid of the politics. He's not afraid of the military might coming against him. He is walking in step with his good father. And that is how we became Lord, not like a Caesar, but like a son of God. And it's his story we celebrate. Here's how we got there. On the night Jesus was betrayed, with conspiracy in the air, he does what he's always doing, making, taking ordinary things and making them extraordinary. He takes bread, he breaks it, says, this is my body, going to be broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Then he takes the cup, he says, this cup is my blood, shed for you and all y'all, all, all over the world, every nation, tribe, and tongue, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. His friends had no idea what was going on. Night unfolds like a nightmare. He's arrested, mock trial, hung up on a cross. Disciples scatter in a fog of confusion, shame, fear. Third day, God raises him from the dead. He is Lord. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the story of the Lord of the universe we celebrate as we come to this 
kneel. I invite the band to come up, and uh, as we move to our time of communion, there are four tables, two up front, two in the back. The bread is gluten-free, cup is grape juice, so everyone's invited. Everyone can have access to it. We, we're going to move to a time of, uh, of worship and singing, and then we invite you to move to the tables whenever you are ready. One other, thing that, one other note is that there's a prayer room open today. The prayer ministers will be right there through that space of that curtain, and they will be glad to pray with you. Anything you got going on, they are here to pray for you and with you and over you. So please take advantage of that, anything you need. They've got communion back there as well. They'll be glad to, to spend some time listening, praying, and walking alongside you. My friends, we're going to move to the tables to declare that Jesus is Lord. We're going to invite you to take the elements, bring them back to your seats, hold on to them, and then we'll eat and drink together. Let me pray for us as we move now to our time of communion. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we ask for the courage to declare that you are Lord. We ask that you would give us wisdom and creativity to know how to navigate that in a broken and weary world, in a politically divided world, where we'd be wide awake to your larger realities. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would come and meet us at these tables and come awake in our hearts and our minds and our spirits to follow you as Lord and Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.